From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bima. On this episode, the rabbis are joined by Justice Richard Bernstein, Michigan Supreme Court Justice, blind triathlete, and activist for disability awareness. Justice Bernstein shares why being blind helps him see the best in people, talks about how he stays positive in the face of challenges and adversity, and explains how he uses Ironman competitions as a means to connect to Hashem. Also, why did the rabbis decide not to go behind the bima on Hanukkah? All this and more, Behind the bima. It's Wednesday night, 9 p.m. I am Rabbi Ephraim Gover, joined by my colleagues and friends, Rabbi Philip Moskowitz, Rabbi Josh Brody, and we're here to bring you Behind the bima. Behind the Bima. Gentlemen, we took off last week. It was Hanukkah, but we debated. Sometimes you feel like we got to keep producing. It's a weekly thing people expect. And on the other hand, I was taught when I was younger, when I first became a rabbi, always leave people wanting more. Why did we decide in the end to take off? What was the thought process behind it, Rabbi Moskowitz? Well, I think it was a great decision. I know it was one that was greatly appreciated in my household. Um, this Hanukkah, I don't know about you guys, I felt it was the most busy of any Hanukkah I ever remember in my 12 years here in Boca Raton. Every night there were multiple events, multiple programs, and you had to time it perfectly to get from one event to the other, to really to be able to make everything. And the thought process really was that we're leaving our families, we're running out so much of the time. We preach and we give drushes about the benefit of staying at the home, looking at the candles, appreciating family time. And yet most nights because of our obligations, we're, we're running out and we're going to a lot of events. And so the thought process was, that we are going to put our families first on Hanukkah. And we are going to take the time, and instead of recording behind the bima, we're going to sit around, we're going to play games, we're going to read, we're going to talk, we're going to bake, whatever it is that you do with your family on Hanukkah. And we were going to focus inwards yeah. inside our houses this Hanukkah. And make salmon, make salmon, eat kale, salmon. Whatever, whatever it is you do when you're home. Right. I agree with you, and I think it's even more than that. And as much as we receive enormous feedback, and we're so grateful to you, the people who share with us what this means to spend Wednesday nights together or Thursday while you shop or while you cook. It's a real honor that you bring us into your lives. But you know what? We remembered and reminded ourselves that this is fun. Teaching Torah is our life and helping people is our life and being there and Hanukkah with our families is our life. But you know what? Maybe at some point behind the beam we'll run out. Maybe we'll say, you know what? This was uh, worthwhile. It was fun. Corona got it started. We've had amazing guests. But it's not the core or central part of who we are and the difference we want to make as much as right. it does impact people. And we're proud and grateful for that. But I think it was uh, it was good for ourselves, uh, education for ourselves and our families and and you that, you know what, nothing wrong with missing a week because our lives don't revolve around this fun podcast we do. Well, we have a guest tonight that certainly has his eye on the ball of what is important, what is not. I know you want to introduce him, but uh, someone who I know has had a profound impact on all of us, Rabbi Goldberg. Yes, we were privileged to have him in our shul through the OU and Yachad because he's constantly spent his life fighting for people with disabilities. But the truth is, you can't describe him as having a disability. He has more ability than most people with 20-20 vision. Richard Bernstein's been blind since birth, uh, and that has never held him back at all. Phi Beta Kappa Graduate University of Michigan, law degree Northwestern University. He was elected to the Supreme Court of Michigan in 2015. Wow. He served on the Board of Governors of Wayne State University. He was an adjunct professor. He's worked in a law firm. He's fought and changed countless legislation. Um, we'll talk to him. We're going to ask him tonight about um, being in the Middle East and, and living among Arab countries, trying to fight for people with disabilities. He's just an unbelievable person. He's, he's run in 25 marathons. He's competed in an Ironman, all not being able to see at all. He's a ball of energy, positivity, optimism. Nothing's held him back. He's an incredible person, and it's really an honor to be able to welcome Justice Richard Bernstein. 
We are joined by our good friend, Justin Richard Bernstein. Justice Bernstein, it is an honor to be together again. We hosted you in our shul several years ago, and please, God, look forward to doing so again. You were an inspiration then, and, and we didn't think or know how you could even grow to be an even greater inspiration, but somehow you figured that out, and we're going to share a lot about that, but thank you for being with us. Well, good morning, and I have to say, I love your synagogue and I love your community. It is the warmest, most energetic, most uplifting place to be. It is just an incredible environment that you guys have created, and I loved being a part of it. Thank you so much. You're so kind for saying that. We're going to jump right in because there's so much to talk to you about and so much inspiration to draw from you. So for those who, who don't know your background, um, Justice Bernstein has been visually impaired since he was born. He had a disorder uh, which I will not try to pronounce since uh, he was born, which left him blind. And many other And you people... can just say blind. I'm always blind. very comfortable with it. I always believe, you know what? You should say what I am. I'm blind. <laughs> blind. We can go straight with that and feel comfortable with it. We appreciate that. So I don't have to say ret retinitis. You don't have to, yeah, retinitis. it's all good. Okay, good. <laughs> so, so many people would be born blind and maybe their parents, maybe they themselves would, would um, grow up feeling disabled and, and feeling disadvantaged and therefore feeling, you know what, getting through the day is, is more than enough, but not just as Bernstein, who not only uh, graduated college and not only took the LSATs, graduated law school, but is the first Supreme Court justice who was blind, uh, who was struggling with that, or not struggling, who was thriving despite that disability, just finished his 25th marathon, has competed in Ironman competitions. There is so much to talk about, but let's go back to the very beginning. Justice Bernstein, share with us what it was like growing up blind. You never knew the experience of sight. Um, what, what's it like to be blind? Do you imagine what people look like, what things look like? Does your imagination even allow you to picture or because you never experienced that? So there's no experience. What, what's that like? Oh, that's a great question. I think it creates a sense of spirituality. Because what ultimately happens is, is, is that I don't live in the physical world. So I really experience the energy of people. And I think the key thing about being blind is, look, it's definitely a challenge and it's definitely difficult. But here's the thing about it is, is that how often do you get to go through life and see the best in people? Because the thing about blindness is it's something that people can empathize with. They can understand it. Like it's an easy thing for people to relate to. So as a result, I basically spend my day having the opportunity to see the absolute best in people. People will always go out of their way to help you. People will always go out of their way to assist you. People will always kind of be there for you. And so quite candidly, you know, as I go through my days and I go through my life, there is something really kind of beautiful about having the opportunity to have that kind of personal interaction with people, whether the people you know or people that are just assisting you on the street, where ultimately you get to see the best in people each and every day. That's, per that's a phenomenal perspective. I, I want to get to in a moment how you've experienced the pandemic and how the world has, has pivoted to be on Zoom, something that those who can see take for granted. But before we get to that, let's go all the way back to your childhood. Sure. What was your childhood like? How does a child play and make friends and play dates? How did you get through school without the ability to read, to study, to see a blackboard, a whiteboard? Mm. What was that like? Well, first off, I am so glad that you asked me this question because I'm hoping that there are some young people that we're talking to now, you know, and perhaps if there's anyone out there that's like in high school or is in middle school, 
I really want to talk to you directly now. And I would have to say that, you know, look, secondary education, high school especially, was an incredibly difficult time. I was the only blind person like in my district. So I was different, you know, and when you're different, it's never really easy. But here's the thing, and I'm really talking right now to anyone who's in high school or anyone who has a child in high school. And I'm gonna tell you something that I really wish people had told me, which is as you go through life, you sometimes, for some of you that are out there that are really struggling, the way that I really struggled, you know, feeling awkward, not really knowing where you fit in, waking up every morning and having to go to school and having to deal with people that would give you a hard time or would bully you or pick on you because of the fact that you just weren't like everybody else. And there's a lot of people that are watching right now where this is not an easy time in their life. When they wake up in the morning and they have to go and face all this, they're not overly excited to do it. And for those people that are listening to us right now, this is the message that I really want to share with you. Sometimes in life, you just have to accept that this is going to be a very difficult time. That this is going to be a difficult experience. And what I have come to find is in certain situations, you have to realize that it's just not going to be your time. But here's the thing. For those of you who are having those experiences the way that I had those experiences, this is what I want you to know. It really gets better. And it gets better in ways that you can't envision and that you can't even begin to remotely comprehend. And so what I would say to you when you're going through high school and you're struggling every day, you know, you don't always have to worry about fitting in. Don't always try to adapt to the situation. Just simply make the best of it. Try to find a few good friends, try to find a few things that you like and focus on that. But here's the deal. I have come to believe that the people that struggle the most in childhood are always the people that God chooses to have the most profound impact on the world because it is only through challenge and hardship that you have an understanding and an appreciation of struggle. And it's through that comprehension that you are able to impact and affect people all across the world. So for those people that are watching us right now who are facing these difficulties, just ultimately accept the fact that yes, you are different and accept the fact that you're gonna face some difficult experiences. But what I want you to take from this is that Hashem is giving you these experiences for a reason because you have been selected to have an impact. And it's only through the experiences that Hashem is giving to you, which right now are not so good, that you will use them to create great change and do tremendous things. So you, you know that because you're an extraordinary person, but who else mentored and taught you that? When you were a young person and you felt different, you felt an outsider, you weren't able to relate to the world as, as others did, something motivated someone internally and externally. There were people who pushed you. You fought for disability rights in school. You graduated from University of Michigan. You applied to law school, but you couldn't take the LSAT because it included graphs and other visual materials. And nevertheless, you fought through anyway. You passed the bar. And then you got elected the first blind person to the Supreme Court, having never been a justice before. And again, we're going to get to also the Ironman, the 25 marathons. You are a driven, ambitious, hungry, unbelievable person. You've accomplished more 
I would say than most than almost all people who don't who have their sight who don't struggle with blindness. So who mentored you? Who pushed you? Who made you believe that you could do all those things, even in a world that maybe tried to convince you you couldn't? I think at the end, it always comes down to family, right? It's always going to come down to your parents. It's always going to come down to your siblings. They're the ones who kind of give you that excitement, that energy, that zest, that enthusiasm for life. And I think I always came from a family where basically we were raised with this sense of eternal optimism. And we had this wonderful sense of idealism. But I really think that what it was, was all of this is going to start from the family. It is always your parents. It is always going to be your siblings. It is always going to be the people that are closest to you that are going to help to guide you and give you that direction and allow for you to realize what is possible. Because candidly, the, the external world is always going to pose limitations. And so you always have to have kind of a certain baseline that basically says that, yes, anything and everything is possible. And you always get that from your parents. And I think my family was extraordinary in this regard, that they basically always understood that there's a difficult balance that you always have to weigh when you have a child with a severe disability. And the balance is always that there's this modicum of independence versus kind of basically nurturing and protectionism, where basically you have a child that, you know, when they go out into the world, they're, they're blind, so they're clearly at a higher risk. But at the same time, you want them to experience the world. You want them to find the world enchanting. You want them to, to be excited about the people they're going to meet and the places they're going to go. And I think what my parents did, which is probably the most remarkable thing and the thing that I will always be most grateful for, is they understood and they appreciated that balance. And they were able to do it just right so that they could basically do the necessary things for safety and to kind of allow for you to kind of have the nurturing that you need. But at the same time, they were all about independence. They were all about learning how to do things on your own. They were all about learning how to do, you know, anything that you could. They were all about life experiences. They were all about taking chances. And they really kind of gave me this ability and this belief that you have to live, that you have to enjoy each and every day, that you have to make the most of the experience that you're given. And I think it was the fact that they really focused in on the notion that you should be independent and that you should crave independence and that as a result of your independence, you should be able to live the life that you're meant to live. And I think mm -hmm. they got that balance just right because quite candidly, I love what Colin Powell said. He said that towards the end of his life, he said, you know what? He never missed a day of life. And I really like subscribe to that. And I think I got that from my family, which was, I just don't want to miss a day of life. I don't want to miss out on anything. And I want to make sure that when the day is over and the week is over, I can look back at it. And I can feel that, you know what? I lived it with glory to Hashem. And I used the time that I had to make the most of the experiences that I was given. Because it's that's such a, it's all just, experiential. It's a lesson for all parents, by the way, whether your child has a disability or not, to not helicopter parent, to give them that balance that you're describing and that you're crediting your family with, 
is a great lesson for all parents, whether their children struggle with a disability or not. Let's get Rabbi Moskowitz going to jump in here. Yeah, if I could just if I could just push a little bit more because sure. it's beyond inspiring. But there are many people who grew up in great houses and great mm -hmm. family structures, and they're going through life. And yet every time they encounter an obstacle or a bump along the road, you think it was this major catastrophe. They spiral into, I don't want to use clinical terms, but, but they don't approach it with the same level of optimism and enthusiasm that you do. What gives you that everyday confidence to overcome challenges? Um, I would imagine that being blind has enormous challenges, and yet you're so positive in your energy level, in your optimism. What's your message to people, maybe who don't have as significant disabilities, but who encounter those bumps along the road and yet crumble because of them, as opposed to you who rose as a result of them? So, Rabbi, that's a beautiful question. First off, I think it's okay to be frustrated. I think it's okay to be disappointed. I think it's okay to be angry. And I think it's okay to be sad. I think these are all completely appropriate emotions. I don't wake up every day being happy and being joyous. In fact, with the difficulties of my job and all the challenges that you know you have to face on a daily basis, you know, I'm not always like, you know, a happy person. In many situations, you know, I have those very challenging emotions and that raw, you know, frustration and anger that just develops kind of within all of us. It kind of makes us who we are. But I think the way that I tend to approach it is, is that you can have a bad day, a bad week, a bad month or a bad year. You can have all these things. But I think what it is, is if you can find like one or two really good things about your day, if you can find like one or two experiences that you can say, okay, this made this a meaningful day. Like this made this a good day. This made this like a positive day. That can serve just like we were talking about before as a balance. And a lot of times, you know, what I have kind of come to find just in my own life, in my own experiences is look, you know, in addition to being born blind, I also went through a catastrophic injury where I was hospitalized for over 10 weeks at Mount Sinai in New York Hospital, or at, at New York at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, and I had to learn how to walk again and do everything all over again. And you know, I had done 17 marathons at that point. Got struck by a bicycle in the park, and literally had to relearn how to do everything all over again. And I think you know what you what you come to to realize when these kind of things happen. And I think for a lot of folks that are kind of in our community that hopefully are joining us today, I think this is the key thing. Sometimes in life, people will always say whether you've had a huge loss, whether you've had a financial reversal, whether your child is struggling, whatever it is, people will always say, oh, you know what? I know everything's going to be fine. Or they're going to say to you, oh, I know that, you know, you're going to make a full recovery. Or they're going to say to you, especially if it's the loss of a, a loved one, they're going to say to you, oh, you know what? I hope that you'll be able to find closure. Those things should be eliminated from our vocabulary. Never say to somebody who's going through a hard time that you can find closure. Never say to somebody who is facing insurmountable loss or health challenges, never say to them, you're gonna be okay. And never say to someone in the hospital that, oh, I know you're gonna make a complete recovery. Because for the absolute vast majority of people, 
they are not going to be okay. They are not going to make a complete recovery and things are not going to be fine and they are not going to find closure. Those are things that should be stricken from the lexicon and never to be repeated again. What the key is, and I can only say from my own kind of personal experience, you know, I don't have any training on this. I can only just say from my own kind of life experience, the key to it is the power comes in finding a way to adapt. It is adapting to your new circumstance, to your new situation. And in many situations, it's finding a way to adapt to your new life a life that you might not want, a life that you hope that you wouldn't have to live, but the life that you now have. The power comes in finding a way to adapting to your new circumstance and to your new situation. The people that survive, the people that thrive, and the people that live are the people that are able to have that power and that ability. It is not always about getting over something. It's about seeing your life in a perspective that, okay, this is what it is. And then adapting to that circumstance and trying to find purpose and meaning. And just, I know I'm giving a long answer, but I think it's important, right? Very, that that's amazing, the, very. But here's the thing, the people that live the best lives, okay, and this is really important, right? This is so important. And especially for folks that are working, you know, with people like myself who, you know, are struggling or facing difficulties. So often people will say, oh, you know, oh, but you're loved and this and that, or God loves you and Hashem loves you and this and that. That, that, that is great and that's important, but that's not what it is. The key to people moving through challenges or difficulties is people have to feel needed. It's not about being loved. It's about being needed. So the idea is, it's not that, you know, as you're going through life, it's not that Hashem loves you, it's that Hashem needs you and that mm. you are created for a purpose and for a mission and for That's a reason. And I'm just gonna tell you, like in my situation, one of the hardest things was athletics has become my life. I used athletics to cope with my blindness. I used athletics to have identity. I used athletics to have strength. I used athletics to have independence. And that was the thing that guided me. And then ultimately, one day in Central Park, I get struck by a bicyclist who's going 35 miles an hour. And then my life changed dramatically. I had done 17 marathons and a full Ironman. And now I couldn't even use the bathroom. I couldn't even do a single thing for myself. And what would happen is I had to start from the very beginning and learn how to walk all over again and have to face the pain that came with these catastrophic injuries that required over 10 weeks of hospitalization. And I think the reason I'm giving you kind of such a long answer to that is because for me, I couldn't just accept that this was some sad circumstance, that this was some sad fate. I had to believe that there was a purpose behind it or a reason behind it, whether it's true or not. I had to feel that there was a reason for this. And I had to feel that something had to come out of this that was going to be positive, that was going to be constructive. And that's why I litigated with the city of New York to have them fix Central Park. I didn't ask them for a dime or a nickel. I wanted the park fixed. I wanted to make it better. And do people still get injured in Central Park? Absolutely. 
but did the city make some significant changes to the park as a result of this situation that will prevent possibly countless other people from having to experience it, you can look at it and say, okay, you know what? When I wake up in pain every day and when I struggle to do my marathons, which I'm still doing because I won't give up, I'm still out there doing them. They're not easy, but I'm doing them. I can say, you know what? Something came out of this that made a difference or made things better. And I can look to that and cling to that to say that, okay, with this pain came a sense of purpose. And Rabbi, that's what it really comes down to. The people that go through life that are the survivors are the ones that basically, I think, really live their life are people that have come to understand their mission. They come to understand their purpose. And in certain situations, they come to understand their reason for creation. And as a result of that, that gives them a sense of determination that makes their life not easy, but extraordinarily fulfilling. Uh, Justice Bernstein, Richard, you're a breath of fresh air. You are such a motivation. You're unbelievable who you are and how you live. And we can't thank you enough for spending this time. Let's go behind the beam. Let's go behind the scenes a little bit. Tell us some of the practical ways that you live life. So 2014, you were elected to an eight-year term uh, in Michigan's Supreme Court, first blind Supreme Court justice. H- how do you... Um, were, first of all, were there were there people who opposed it? Were there uh, was there opposition? How could a blind person give people a fair trial? You can't see them. You can't necessarily entirely assess the situation. How do you read filings and motions and documents? How do you review them? How do you function in court? How did you function through school? We spoke about it a little bit. How do you function in a position of having to give your judgment on a daily basis when you're not able to see the way others do? What do you do in a practical sense to get through and how did that change in the last year and a half two years during corona when your uh, emotions were being heard over zoom was that different from the way that you were able to function when in person so i'm so glad you asked that question so first off here in the great state of michigan to serve on our state's highest court you have to be elected by all the people of the state of michigan so there's 11 million people who live in our state and if you wish to serve on the supreme court you have to be elected by the, by the majority of people in the state. It's a full statewide race. And there's a big discussion about, well, what is better? Is it better to appoint judges or is it better to elect judges? And I will say wholeheartedly that it is absolutely much better to elect judges than it is to appoint them. And the reason I share that is because going to your question, If I had to go in front of like what they would call merit selection committee to try to become a judge, what would have happened rabbi is that people would have said, oh my God, that is so inspirational. That that wonderful blind guy, he wants to be a judge. I'm I'm so inspired and wow, what a great story and all that. And then as soon as I were to leave the room, here's how the conversation would go. They would say, well, you know what? you know, that's so great that this blind guy wants to do it, but you know what? This is gonna be too challenging. This is gonna be too difficult. This is gonna be too hard. How is he gonna do all the work? How is he gonna keep up with the material? How can we make the necessary accommodations? You know what? Let's just go with the safe choice. Let's go with Bob. Bob looks like us, he sounds like us, acts like us. You know, he's not at all different. 
let's just go with someone who we know is safe. Let's just go with Bob. Bob's perfect. And you know what? That's great that Richard wanted to do this, but we all know that this is just going to be way too challenging and way too difficult. So let's just move past him. But because it was an election, you didn't have a group of people sitting around a table making that decision. It was up to the people of the state of Michigan. And I want people to start feeling more optimistic about our country. I want people to start feeling more excited because I want to share this, right? People asked, could this be done? A blind person running for the state's highest court? You know, if I were to take you back 50, 60 years, people like me, people with severe disabilities used to live in state-run institutions. And through a lot of work and effort, people started living in group homes and becoming more independent. Now you see people with disabilities, you know, on the street, on airplanes, at your workplace. And we have made so much progress. And when the extraordinary becomes the ordinary, you know that good things are happening. But this was the question, Rabbi, about the election. Were people going to be okay with this? What was the reaction? of the people to having a person who is disabled, not just living with them, not just working with them, but being put in a position where this disabled person is going to be making decisions that are going to affect their lives. So what were people's reaction to this notion of having a disabled person making decisions that were going to affect the lives of able-bodied people? And I just think that people need to become a little bit more optimistic. Michigan is a purple state. Michigan is 50-50. It's right down the middle. You got basically one side of the state tends to be more Democratic. The other side of the state tends to be more conservative Republican. And when I went out across the state, people were really fascinated as to what was going to happen. How were people going to receive somebody like me? And you know, reporters and stuff would follow this election. And it was a fascinating race because you know what ultimately happened? People said all across the state, didn't matter if you were a liberal Democrat or a conservative Republican, people said, you know what? I want this guy to be my judge. And you know why I want this guy? Because he understands struggle. He understands what it means to have to struggle. He understands what my parents are going through. He understands what my kids are going through. He understands what I'm going through. And that's the key. Struggle is a unifying factor because it is something that everyone experiences, that everyone lives with, and everyone appreciates. And it was the kind of thing that ultimately because you know this wasn't decided by some elite group at a table, but yet was decided by the people on the streets of the state of Michigan, I was able to win this election by 10 points. And what was great about that was that people were saying, we are sending you to Lansing because we believe that your life experiences will allow for us to have a better life. Now, I want to answer your question, like logistically, so how does this work? All right, so this is great because if it had been an appointment process, it just, they wouldn't have done it because they would have said, oh, we can't accommodate. How is this guy gonna do it? Like, this is not possible. But because it was an election, the people decided and the state court system had to make it work, right? There was no choice. Like once the voters decided, I was coming to Lansing. And so right. the state court system was gonna have to adapt 
to make this a success. And here's the thing, what you find when you hire somebody with a severe disability or hire someone who's different, what you find is that what works well for the disabled works well for everybody. So the changes that we made to the court system so that I could perform in this position didn't just help me, but they created a better court system for everybody. And I'll just give you a very quick example of like how it works, like logistically how it works. So the most important part of this job is what we call conference. Conference happens every Wednesday in Lansing, Michigan at 9.30 a.m. There are minimally 25 cases on the conference agenda. Now, what you have to realize with the Supreme Court is that we're generalists. We are deciding everything. You could have a murder case, you could have a rape case, you then move to the civil docket, you could be dealing with environmental issues for like nuclear regulation, you could be dealing with utility power companies regulation issues, you could be dealing with malpractice issues, you could be dealing with taxation issues where cases will involve two to three billion dollars. You could be dealing with parents who are losing their children. So you're dealing with everything. And so people ask, well, how does this work if you are blind? Like, how do you do this? Do you put the cases into Braille? Well, no, that's not gonna work because the way that Braille works is if I give you one textbook page, you're gonna give me 65 Braille pages. So that's just simply not an option and it's not feasible. So you can't use Braille. So then people say, okay, you got 25 cases that you're deciding every Wednesday. Do you use your computer? Well, you can't use your computer. The computer is not going to be an option because if I'm on my computer, I'm not able to converse with my colleagues. There's six other colleagues that I got to converse with. There's six other justices. And if I'm on my computer, I'm not able to interact with my fellow colleagues. And so if I'm not able to interact with them, then my entire, you know, position is useless because I need to be able to persuade. If I if I believe in a case or I believe in an issue, I've got to be like an argument. So I, I have to be completely present. And if I'm on my computer, that's not going to work. Some people say, okay, you got 25 cases. How do you handle that volume of material every week? And the answer is that I memorize all the cases. Now, when I say memorize, I don't memorize them word for word because that isn't really possible. Like you can't memorize, you know, a four week murder case transcript. That's just not possible. But I will know all the key legal issues that are relevant to that file. So how do you know there's a clerk who reads to you the file? How do you exactly even memorize question. it? So I get, so the other justices have five clerks. I get one additional clerk. So I have six clerks instead of the five. And the reason is, is because everything takes me so much longer. If it takes you one hour to do something, it takes me five hours to do the same thing. So I need that extra staffing in order to kind of work through the materials that I ultimately have to work through. So yeah, we internalize these cases, but here's the thing. I will know all of the key legal issues of that case. I'm not going to know it word for word, but I will know all the main legal issues. Like if it's a hearsay question, if it's a question about prejudicing the jury, if it's a question about admissibility, 
all these issues are issues that I'm going to know backwards and forwards. I will know everything that is on the table that's being discussed and being debated. But wait, Rabbi, this is the best part because we're not even done yet. We still have one other little challenge that kind of comes in, which is not only do I have to know the case that we're voting on, I have to know all the corresponding common law cases that are on point. So for example, there's gonna be common law cases that kind of work in your favor. And then there's gonna be common law cases that work against the position that you're trying to argue. So I have to know all the cases that work in my favor that I'm able to basically use to kind of bolster my argument. And then I have to be able to distinguish all of the cases that work against me and be able to you know, put forth an argument because you can't just tell your colleagues, oh, well, this person was treated unfairly. We need to get them a new trial. You have to put on a case. You have to make an argument as to why you feel the court should vote the way the court is ultimately going to vote. And what will happen is the commissioners will say, justices, we are now on case 18. Case 18 is a carjacking on Woodward Avenue that resulted in two homicides. So when I hear carjacking on Woodward Avenue resulting in two homicides, that's my mental trigger. And that's what causes me to understand the case. I use the facts of the case as a mental trigger to understand and appreciate kind of the issues and the complexities of the materials that the court's going to have to vote on. Your memory must be even sharper and stronger because by force, you, you didn't have a choice to rely on the ability to go back and to look and to read and to review. So it, I guess, forces you to exercise that memory muscle and, and use it even better. How has it been on Zoom? How has it changed <laughs> on Zoom? And is there a difference? Is there a difference right now? If, if Rabbi Brody's joined us as well, if the four of us were sitting in a room together having this yeah. conversation and you yeah. can't see us, or you're sitting in front of a computer having the conversation and can't see us. Is there a difference if you're in the room with people? Once you're blind, is there a difference if you're in the room with people or they're on technology? So I am on kind of a mission and, and I realize I'm gonna be very direct about this and I, and I totally respect people who you know might disagree with me, but I, I am just gonna be very candid and very direct about this. We must go back to being in person. We must, this is not working. This is not working. It doesn't work. I'm just gonna say it. Life is community and community is life. A person like myself needs people. I love people. The way that I understand and appreciate the world is exclusively through people. Doing this interview on Zoom is painful for me because I don't feel a connection and I feel your energy. So when I meet somebody, the way that I connect with them is through the energy that that person has, because I don't see. And when you don't see, you, 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 you have to create a different way to understand the world that you live in. So for me, it really comes from energy. And I have to feel that energy. I need to be around people. I need to be with people. And I'm just going to say, again, what is good for the disabled is good for everybody. What is bad for the disabled is bad for everybody. And I will just tell you that Zoom doesn't work. It doesn't work. 
we can sit here and we can debate this until the end of time. I am telling you, it doesn't work. We have to be in person. We must be together. We're meant to be together. This goes to my soul and it goes to my spirit. We are still doing court virtually. We are doing court virtually. And the challenge for me is, is that I need to be in the courtroom. I need to like be present with the lawyers. I need to feel that. I need that like in person. Cause for me, it really comes down to the essence of life for kind of who I am and the world that I crave and need to have. And I think, you know, quite candidly, I'm just gonna, just gonna be very direct about it. I think that the way that we have to start seeing things is the way that we approach the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was before I became a justice, this was my life's work, was helping people with disabilities and people with special needs. And the way the ADA approached things was that people that have disabilities would always, we would fight for accommodations. So if there's a person or anybody that requires an accommodation, you make that accommodation. So if there's somebody, and I can, I'm just gonna speak to the courtrooms, if there's somebody that has a concern about coming to court in person, we will accommodate them. We will accommodate them. We will make sure that they are accommodated. So if you're an attorney or you're a client or for whatever purpose or role that you play in the court system, and you're, you're uncomfortable about coming in person, the court will work with you to make sure that you are accommodated. But as for the rest of us, we should all be in person. For those that have concerns, you address those concerns, you accommodate those concerns, you work with them on an individual basis and make sure, like the ADA does, that they receive all the necessary accommodations that they need to have. But we should be in person at all times. And the default should be in person. The accommodation should be Zoom. But the challenge that I think that we're facing right now is that Zoom has become the default and in-person has become the accommodation. And this is unacceptable. This is something that cannot contain itself or be maintained. And I'm just gonna tell you something very quickly you know, about why I feel so strongly about this. And I'm gonna give you two quick examples about why I think this needs to change and needs to change now. And I think that it really kind of comes to this, right? People have forgotten, and I can say kind of, especially in a lot of situations, people forget why they like each other. People forget that they care about each other in the workplace, with your friends, social situations. You, you forget why you care about somebody. You forget that your coworker is your friend. You forget that your colleague is, in many situations, someone you genuinely care about. You know, conversations like, how is your parents doing? How's your mom doing? Hey, I heard you, you know, had a great celebration this weekend. You know, things that, 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 that bring people together, those conversations matter. Those are very important. When you don't have that kind of interpersonal connectivity of like, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Tell me what's going on with your kids. Tell me, I wanna hear everything about your life. I wanna hear what you're doing. You know, those things that like basically go into those, those, those personal connectivities, those personal relationships, those personal friendships. You know, when you don't have that, 
And let's look at this today. We just came on Zoom. And basically, when you come on Zoom, you talk about the matter at hand. You talk about, you're very specific about why you're on Zoom. You're very agenda. about the yeah. issues. And, and, and so what happens is, is, is that the things that make us people basically get lost. And as a result, you know what happens? People get angry with each other quicker. They get dismissive of each other faster. They basically get frustrated, you know, in a much more expeditious manner. And what happens is, is, is that when you don't have that interpersonal connectivity, then ultimately things are lost. And, and I'm just going to say, I feel so adamant about this. Blind people cannot use Zoom. So you're saying to yourself, well, well you're using Zoom right now. So how is that possible? Well, the reason it's possible is because you have to have someone who can set the thing up, tell you where to look and guide you through the process because we can't do it without assistance, without help. So I'm the one justice that goes into the courtroom. And when we do proceedings on Zoom, I insist that I am in the courtroom and I sit in the courtroom and have a technician from the court sit next to me so that I can participate in the proceedings. But I insist on being in the courtroom. I insist in going into my office. I insist in doing everything in person, even though I'm the only one. But I feel absolutely adamant about this. This cannot continue. Decisions have to be made. People have to make their own decisions and choices as to kind of the life that they choose and want to live and then basically are responsible for those consequences. But for someone like myself, I need to be with people. And I think what people have forgotten too is, is that the suicide rates amongst people in the disabled community are skyrocketing because of the isolation and because of the fact that people aren't together have taken away that, I mean, why did, why is, why does Hashem care so much about community? Because community is really the essence of life. I mean, community is everything. Why is your entire synagogue built around a community? Why do people want to live in the wonderful circle? The reason people live in the circle, they could live in all these other places, but they want to be in that circle because they need that community. And when you take away people's community, you really, for all intents and purposes, are stripping them of who they are and you're taking away their life. And this cannot continue. And we have to begin focusing on getting people back to work, getting people back to school and getting people for all intents and purposes back into being in person and not accepting Zoom as this new alternative for life because it goes against the essence and core of who we are as people. So I feel very strongly about this, that we must have in person at all times and basically make mitigations for folks that for completely understandable reasons have concerns about it. But for we agree, we agree entirely. They have to have community. We, we agree. We also feel strongly about that. We got Rabbi Brody's joined us as well. He's going to jump in with a question. Please. I'm sorry for Thank going you. on this one. I get really worked up over that issue. No, no. Everyone's precious. I'm just wondering, Justice Bernstein, how does prayer, how does tefillah uh, work into your day? Is that what has a big part of, of, of motivating you? Is is it harder to pray because you can't see? Where does prayer That's a great, i got to be honest with you. That's a really great question. And, you know, as you can tell, I'm pretty direct and pretty upfront. 
you know, I probably have a lot of work to do on the observance area, <laughs> just to be candid. I'm just going to put it all out there. Um, you know, look, for me, you know, I, I think what it really comes down to is we're all looking for a connection with Hashem. Like we're all looking to find that kind of level of, of connectivity, right? And so it doesn't necessarily work that well for me to necessarily go to synagogue and, and sit in synagogue because I'm not, I don't connect. It's just for me, it's just, it's not working for me. It doesn't, I, don't, I mean, for other people it, it works, but for me, I'm kind of trying to figure out my own connectivity with Hashem. And do you know how I do it? I do it through endurance competitions. I do it from very, through very intense struggles. That's why I've done 25 marathons and a full Ironman. And I'm just going to tell you, a, you know, a very quick story, right? So what is the Ironman? The Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim, followed by a 112 mile bike to be completed by a 26.2 mile run. And if you stop, if you rest, I did three yesterday, by the way. <laughs> but, but you listen, did three Ironmans yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Three if, steps. <laughs> listen, it's each to their own, right? Everyone's got to kind of find what works for them. But the thing is, if you stop, rest, or take a break during an Ironman competition, you risk the miss. You 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 risk getting missing a cutoff. And if you miss a cutoff you're immediately disqualified from the competition. And if you finish at 12.05 instead of 12 o'clock, it's like you were never even there. It's like two years of effort, work, and training are literally for nothing. Okay. So I just, I'm sharing this with you so you understand kind of my level of connectivity with Hashem. Sure. So, so us, how, how do you do that? How do you do the run? How do you do the bike ride? And certainly how do you do the swim when you're blind? Okay, so the way that you do the, let's start with the run. The way that you do the run is you run with a team of guides. And the guides give you directional cues, hard right, soft right, hard left, soft left. And you follow the directional cues of your guide. And you also have a tether. So you have a tether on your arm and they have a tether you know, on theirs. And there's like a rope connecting you. So you can feel kind of the motion of their body, right? You feel their body's motion. And when they say hard right, that means turn immediately to the right. Soft right means okay, you have some time in which to kind of make your progression. Um, and, and they're gonna to talk to you the entire way. So when you're running a marathon, you have to be focused the entire time because you cannot miss a directional cue. If you miss a directional cue, you're gonna run into another person, you're gonna fall over a pothole, you're gonna hit an obstacle. So you have got to be focused the entire time that you are doing the marathon but you run with an amazing team of people that are there for you to guide you through this process and help you get to the finish. Now, 25 and you've done 25 marathons, 25. That's correct. Now, how the, many more, how many more are you going to do? I, I will usually do every year. I do the New York city marathon. That's like my rule because I mark the year by it. If I don't do the New York city marathon, I don't feel that the year is complete. So it's just one of those things that I literally like it is an essential component of the year that I have to complete the New York City Marathon. How do you, and how do you train the whole time building up to, do you run every day and you find- Yeah, you run with the team. You, well, so you have I, a team who run with and train with you every day. Tethel. Yes, yes, or, or a treadmill, or you can do the treadmill. Someone can set the treadmill for you and then you run kind of independently. Now, the Ironman is a whole different thing. 
because like I was saying before, you have 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and a 26.2 mile run. So I want you to picture, if you would, that feeling you have when you dive into a frigid body of water. Now, when I did the Ironman, I did it in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. The water temperature of Lake Coeur d'Alene was 55 degrees. So I want you to envision what it's like to swim in total darkness. You don't have any idea where you're going. You don't have any idea where you are. You're getting kicked in the face by all the other competitors who don't realize that you're blind. And since you can't see, you can't brace for the impending kind of impact. And then there's one last little struggle. Other competitors become entangled and ensnared in the rope that connects you to your guide. Oh. And when they become entangled, the rope constricts and it takes you below the surface to the point that you start to drown. So Rabbi, I want to answer your question about, you know, to fill in and, and all those kinds of things. I do these competitions and I think this is the core of kind of the whole conversation. I do these competitions because this is how I connect with Hashem. Because what I have found is when you're in the middle of this, when you're cold, when you're scared, when you're in pain, when you're struggling, and when you don't know what the outcome is going to be, that for me is where I connect with Hashem. Because I have found that it's easy to have a relationship with him when things are going well, when you know good health, when you're on top of the world. But this is just me. I can only speak for myself. But I have found that my relationship with him comes when things aren't that good, when things aren't going so well. And when you're going through a lot of pain, I have found that that tends to be where I'm able to find that level of connection with him. And when I'm doing these competitions, it is so intense and so painful that what I have found is that for people like me who have severe limitations physically, what you tend to realize is that even though the body tends to be mortal and even though you have these infirmities. There are certain folks that are given these difficult conditions who will ultimately have the strongest of spirits and the most powerful of souls. And what usually happens during these competitions is the spirit will ultimately disconnect from the body and ultimately the spirit can guide the body and in really, in many situations, the resiliency of the spirit, I believe, allows for you to become closer to the heavens. But what you have to do is you have to have that experience where ultimately you realize the limitations of the flesh, but come to see firsthand the power of the soul. And it's in those circumstances and situations that it really becomes readily apparent. And I'm just going to share with you kind of one story about how I really felt this was, look, you know, I've got my issues with Hashem and I'm sure without question, he's got his issues with me. I guarantee he does. So what I will tell you is, is, is that when I was in the hospital, it was such a painful thing. And what I learned when I was in the hospital, remember I was there for 10 weeks 
was that at the end of the day, and this kind of goes back to all the questions that you were asking, especially the one that deals with, you know, when things get difficult and people who have really good lives and, you know, something goes wrong, that ultimately it sends everything off the rails. And what I found from my experiences is, is that life is never really about big things. It's not about big things. It's always about small things. The small things are what really go into who we are as people. And I can share this with you from this perspective of being a hospital patient, where basically here I was an Ironman, a marathoner. I couldn't do the most simplest of things. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't lift myself up. I couldn't sleep the night. And I remember people would come to visit and I'd always ask them, I'd say, so where are you leaving after you, you know, leave Sinai? And they'd say, oh, you know, I'm going to go to a restaurant or, oh, I'm going to go visit some friends or I've got some work to do. And they'd always say it in a very like mundane way. And I'd always tell them, you know, these are the things that so many people dream about, that they pray for, that that feeling of having a chance to go outside and feel the wind or I dream about what it's like to go to a restaurant and, and hear the clinking of the glasses and the smell of the food and have conversation and dialogue with your friends and people. Now, I dream about those things. Those are things that as I stay here in the hospital, I don't know what my future is. Those are the things that I like crave because those are the things that kind of go to life at its core and its essence. And going back to like the young people that are listening right now that are going through some difficult times, what you always have to do is you have to celebrate every aspect of life, no matter how small or incidental you might think it is, you have to celebrate it. And like for me, I would celebrate the fact that I could actually start moving my leg. I would celebrate the fact that with tremendous effort and energy, I could use a walker and get to the nurse's station at the end of the ward. And I'm just going to share this with you because it's so important about the relationship with Hashem and how I kind of see all of this is that after getting released from the hospital, you know, I wasn't the same person that I was when I went in. I wasn't in this great condition. I was in horrible pain and everything was going to be difficult, but it was time for the New York City Marathon. And I just said, you know what? I have to do this. Like, I'm going to do this. Now, it wasn't going to be a traditional marathon. It was going to be horribly painful. I mean, it was just going to be unbelievably painful because I had all kinds of injuries. And I wasn't going to be able to run it the way I could do it in the past, but I was going to do it anyways. And I just was with my guides and we were running through the streets of New York. And this is where it all comes to light for me. As we crossed the 59th Street Bridge and we started up First Avenue at mile 18, I remember feeling a pain that was so intensive, it defies description. And I remember at that moment, I reached up to Hashem and I prayed to him and I said, Hashem, please, I don't ask you for a lot, but please, can you just let me have this? Just, just let me have this. If I, I can deal with the pain you want to throw at me, but you can't let me pass out. Please, if you, if you, if you allow me to lose consciousness, 
I won't survive this. I will not be able to move on. So I need you to, I get that the pain is going to be what it's going to be, but I simply need for you to let me get across this finish line without losing consciousness. And every one of us has these experiences where you are so angry with Hashem. You are just livid with him. And basically what happened right on First Avenue at mile 18 is you could literally feel the war that exists, I think, with all of us. You can feel the fury and the rage and the hostility that you have for the fact that he allowed for something like this to happen to you. And you can literally like sense the wind and you can hear the thunder and you can feel the lightning and you can you are literally living a storm as the storm is literally raging in your spirit and in your soul. And it's a storm of anger and hostility and resentment and frustration and all these emotions. And then what happens is the miracle does happen. Is right at that point, you are able to find what you've always been looking for. You're able to find peace. You make peace with your new body. You make peace with your new circumstance. You make peace with your new situation. You make peace with your new life. And for me, I was finally able to make my peace with God. And I think at the end of the day, Rabbi, when you ask that question, I think we're all looking for that. I think that's what we crave more than anything else. It's, we just wanna find our peace with him. And I think for some of us, especially the people that are facing real struggles, I think what tends to happen is that you'll have that war and you'll have that battle. And I think it's healthy because when you do that, you are able to come to that sense of peace. And right there on First Avenue at mile 18, we had it out, but I was able to find and make what I was seeking my whole life was peace. Richard, Justice Bernstein, you are an inspiration. You've given us so much of your time already. We'd love to continue talking and please God, you'll be here and in person. We'll be in able to exchange person. energy. <laughs> Want to hear more about, people should know that Justice Bernstein spent six months in the Middle East. He was quarantining in Dubai on his way to Israel when Israel shut its borders. And since I guess that's a positive of the fact that the court moved to Zoom, you well, were actually, able to Rabbi, from Dubai. I have to say, there's a little bit more to it. That's actually, yeah. more, that was more of a cover story. But the uh, real story... So give us the behind the beam story. Uh, tell us the real story. The real story was something very different. I mean, I don't know what your time... I'm mean, happy to tell it to you, but... Yeah, go for it. Tell it to oh, us. Tell the to real us. story was very different. <laughs> Sometimes what you have to have is you always have a... And, and, I'm, and I'm permitted to talk about it now. So like now I'm completely have been given permission to discuss it. Um, but the cover story is always... There's always a cover... The cover story is always different from the real story. But the real story was was one that was actually really captivating. And the real story is that, throughout, and I've been doing this work for years and years and years, but I've always done it quietly. Um, and it's sometimes in many situations, the kind of work that some people do, you do it just because you have this sense of, it's a sense of, uh, of 
of service, right? Like the idea of service is you do certain things because you know it's going to make things better, even though very few people are ever going to know about it. There'll be a small group of people that will know what you're doing, but outside of that, very few people will ever really know, you know, what it is that you're doing, but you do it because you just believe in the mission and you believe in service. And so now that I'm permitted to talk about it, this was a fascinating thing. I've been doing this for years. And, and, and if you guys host me in person, we can talk about all these different things that I've been doing, but I've, I've been doing this for a while. And basically what happens in the, in many parts of the world, and we'll just focus on this and maybe if we can do this in person, I can get into more of this. Uh, but in the Arab world, what tends to happen is, is, is that people who are in power, whether it's kind of people in the royal family or just in just all kind of corners of throughout the world, and not just the Arab world, but throughout countries all across the world, there are incredibly powerful people that have children that have severe special needs. But in most parts of the world, that is seen as a tremendous taboo. It's not to be acknowledged, it's not to be admitted, it's, it's not something people ever wanna talk about. So in many situations, when you have very powerful people who have special needs children, it's often the case that those children sometimes get hidden. And, and basically the idea is out of sight, out of mind, and, and with the taboo, it's best not to acknowledge that. But here's the thing, they all have parents or parents first and foremost, and it's your child. And so I was asked to travel throughout the Arab world as I've been traveling throughout the world up until this, um, to basically spend time with people who are in power that have children with severe special needs. And I can sum up this entire experience uh, in the Arab world where one of the kings said to me, they said, judge, I never realized the potential of my child. I never realized what they were sent here to do. And I never realized the contribution that they could ultimately make. Help me to make life better for folks who are living in the dark. And here's the beauty of it. Israel, has all of the technical ability to make these things happen. Israel has the know-how, Israel has the understanding, Israel has the advancement, Israel is ready to go. So what my job was, was to allow for Israel to develop programs and services all throughout the Arab world. So the idea was that basically Israel has that technical ability to work with folks throughout the Arab world. And you're gonna see this happen now. It's very exciting. You're gonna see new schools being developed. You're gonna be, you're gonna see special education programs and services being developed. You're gonna see assistive technology coming into play in incredible ways all across the Arab world. You're going to see athletic opportunities coming into place. You're gonna see transformational changes that are going to take place between Israel and her Arab neighbors. And ultimately, what was fascinating was it is through that notion of struggle that brings people together. And I'll conclude by sharing with you one last story. 
I was in Israel during, um, during the war with Hamas and everybody knew that the war was coming. I mean, everyone knew this was going to happen because basically Hamas was using COVID as an opportunity to stockpile weapons. So like this was no great surprise that, that, that the war was, was, was that, that the war was going to occur. And what was fascinating was that, you know, I spent 12 days in a bomb shelter because for me, it's hard to get in and out. So, you know, we would come in and out of course, but like, you know, you, it, it was, we had to be a little, I had to be closer to a shelter to get in and out quickly. Uh, but Israel was amazing about that. And, and that was a unique experience because when the iron dome would get fired, you know, when the intervening missile or the uh, interceptor missile would collide with the oncoming missiles, and there were over 5,000 missiles sent into Israel. When the um, missiles would collide through the Iron Dome, the noise was boom, as I'm sure many of your congregants are aware. But when you're blind, you have to multiply it by like a hundred and it just goes right through you. But this is the thing, I had to stay there because we couldn't leave in the middle of this, the US embassy had evacuated, but Israel said, look, it's really important. You gotta, we gotta work this out together because you become the face of this for people with disabilities and special needs, especially in the Arab world. And, and if you leave, that is gonna create doubt and it's gonna be a win for Hamas. So we're just gonna ride this out together. And then I understood why. We went on television the day after the war ended and it was a, fascinating experience because I was on TV and they had the, you know, Israeli point person for, you know, agreements. And then they had one of the top sheikhs who I had actually become very close with, um, you know, throughout my travels to the Arab world. And he and I had become very close. And the sheikh uh, came on television and he's just the most wonderful man you're ever going to meet. And he came on, just a wonderful man. And he came on and he said, look, we're under a lot of pressure to withdraw relations with Israel. We're under a lot of pressure to, you know, stop all diplomatic relationships. And, you know, we're, we're experiencing a lot of pressure, but this is what the Sheikh went on to say. He said, we are moving forward. We are not turning back. And he went on to say, there's no way we will ever turn back with our relationships with Israel. And he said, this is too important. And he went on to say, we have an opportunity to allow for so many people who live in the darkness to come into the light because of our relations with Israel, because of our work with Israel. We have the chance, I always remember the language, we have the chance to allow for those who live in the darkness to come into the light. And what was explained to me was that what the sheikhs were referring to was that they saw this relationship as a way that they were going to make life better for their own families, for the people that had struggles that they were close with, that they were gonna use this new knowledge and experience that Israel was gonna to provide to them with the technical support and shared experiences and best practices to create a better life for their people. Struggle creates relationships. Struggle makes life better. And I'll just end with this. And I love this story and then I'll end. And it's a story that we all know, but it goes to why God creates us. And it's the story, of course, is the angel visiting Jacob. And as we know, there existed a great battle 
that lasted until the dawn. And when the sun rose, as the story goes, that we all know, the angel blessed Jacob and gave him a new name, the name of Israel, which as we know means one who struggles with God. But we also know that Jacob was given a shattered hip and he would walk with a limp and he would know great pain for the remainder of his days. I believe the scripture tells us this because it was only through Jacob's pain and his struggle and his adversity that he was able to connect, he was able to understand, he was able to empathize, and it was only through his struggles that he could become the leader and the father of a nation. And in my situation, if Hashem had not given me my struggles, not that I wish them on anyone and not that I like them, but why else did he give them to us but for us to become nicer, to become kinder, to become more understanding? Why else does Hashem give us these struggles, but to use them to make life better for others? Struggle is a unifier. Struggle isn't something that we enjoy, but struggle is something that we can use to really enhance and make things better. Justice Bernstein, we can't thank you enough. You are a shining light. You are dispelling so much darkness. A very happy Hanukkah to you. A very huge thank you for all that you do. And most importantly, we can't wait to see you in person, to welcome <laughs> you, to exchange energy, to be together. And um, Rabbi Moskowitz will go for a run with you. So I'm looking yeah. forward to I'm, I'm deeply, that. I'm deeply humbled by your 25 <laughs> marathons. <laughs> yeah. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. Thank you for everything you should have. Good health and success and happiness and everything that you do. And thank you again for joining us. Thank you. And God bless you and God bless your congregants. Thank you. That was fantastic. That wow. was actually life-altering. To hear and feel his energy, it comes through the camera. And, and I don't know about you, rabbis, but I, all I could think about is how do you experience and live the world without being able to see? Have you ever been to the Blind Museum in Israel, in Tel Aviv? If you go to the Blind Museum, I've never been. I won't say, I went with my I family. I won't say which member of the family somebody I'm related to through marriage, but somebody, a member of the family who actually had to tap out and leave. She just panicked really? and felt claustrophobic and, and just felt like didn't have her bearings and, and actually had to leave. But you go through that, Rabbi Bird, have been to the Blind Museum? I went to the Blind Museum, but I also went to this other place called uh, um, Dinner in the Dark, Nalagat, where you go and you actually eat in a, in a three-course meal completely yeah. in the dark. The Blind Museum, you go from right. the experience of a supermarket to a kitchen to a living room. Right. And it, whatever you can picture as pitch black, it's it's pitcher black than that. It's right. like dark, but dark, 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 pitch black, dark. You have and to leave your just, phones in a, in a locker. Like, you're just, you can't you're, bring you're them feeling, in. you're getting hit by other people's stick. You're trying to figure out how I can make change or pay. There's an actual cafe. Everyone who works there is blind. There's an actual cafe where you order you have to pay and figure out the change. How do you open what you what you ordered? How do you eat it and drink it? So this whole time we're talking to Richard, that's all I could think about is we're looking at him and we've got the feedback of looking at someone and he's just living in the pitch dark physically, you know, spiritually and emotionally. He's in the light, but it really amazing. Yeah, you know, for me, it, I almost felt like I was living the story. Like it was almost good to be true. Like at every point of the interview, I was like, if you'd only done this, that would have been amazing. And then he yeah. just kept on telling us things that he did. And I'm like, that is crazy. I mean, I don't think people right. who 25 marathons, I these are incredible feats for an, anyone who can see. 
in the challenges that he goes through in terms of the swimming component. I don't mean that. We get yeah, cool. Let's talk about that because Rabbi Moskowitz, you're an avid runner. You're going to be in the Miami Marathon this year. People are runners. Rabbi Brody, you've got. Are you still running? You've been through I'm your running, running phases. He's running Miami I, with me also. I've never been in a running phase. I've tried. I don't like it. I don't feel a runner's high. I just don't know. I just tried to convince myself. But my hips and my knees to and my heartbeat totally <clears throat> disagreed with me. So I like to exercise. I like to do things, but not run. So as runners, can you relate to what he said? Can I can't even fathom. I want you to know. Going I, for I, a run I, I in really, the pitch black. I really can't even fathom. Um, first of all, just the number of marathons and the Ironman. But I, I cannot fathom what it's like to do that without being able to see. And I'll just share with you, quite honestly, that as he was describing the experience, I was feeling a little anxious. I was trying to envision right. myself doing that. And I was really feeling a little anxious because I right. know what it's like with the bumps in the road right. and what it's like when you got to make the turns and when you're trying to pass someone and they're cutting you're you off and, and, and you don't want to, you don't want to step in the puddle of water. Yeah. I, I can't, you know? I, I was really, I'm, I'm being honest. I was feeling right. anxious, listening yeah. to him, trying to envision myself doing when that. You, when you try I, to picture swimming with your eyes closed, that's like waterboarding. That's like a form of, no, I get anxious. People. I get right. anxious yeah. even thinking about that. Especially Brody, with the biggest people knocking away. you on the head. No, it's just amazing. It's very inspiring. It just makes me think that, you know, whatever we're able, able or whatever we think we're able to do, we could do so much more. Sky's the limit. Sky's what a great minute. It was an amazing yeah. conversation. Really touched us. I hope it touched all of you. As always, thank you for being behind the BMO with us. Until next time, we have an amazing guest next week. Should we give a little appetizer who we're having? They have a week Professor, to read the book. Professor Dr. Dara Horn. People love dead Jews. People love dead. I just happen to have it right here. People love dead Jews. Uh, yeah, you have a week to read the book and come informed to that conversation. We're looking forward to meeting her. I've heard so much about her. Till next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the Bima.